Hello, welcome to Let's Talk Social Work. My name is Andy McLenahan, and today my guests and I will be discussing resilience. Social work is a demanding role, and even under the best of circumstances, as social workers support individuals to improve life opportunities, they will face difficulties and stresses associated with their work. First, our conversation today will look at how social workers can withstand and recover from the pressures and stresses they face. We'll then move on to examine whether a focus on resilience gives an easy out for organisations which overburden and stretch their social workers beyond what is manageable. And we'll ask if resilience as an individual quality is really what we should be focused on. Joining me for the discussion are Dr Jennifer Simpson and Sam Pullman. Jennifer is Senior Lecturer in Social Work and Course Leader for MA Advanced Social Work at Nottingham Trent University. And Sam previously worked as a frontline social worker with children and families and as a social work manager before embarking on her doctoral studies. Welcome Jennifer, welcome Sam. Both first time on Let's Talk Social Work. How are you doing? Jennifer, how are you? Um, I'm fine today. Thank you very much, Andy. Great. Jennifer, are you in Nottingham at the moment? Uh, no, I'm actually working from home, so I'm a, I am have a hybrid existence. Great. So, Sam, how are you doing? Are you yeah, well? Yeah, I'm good, thanks. Yeah, yeah, all good. So, Great. happy to be here. Yes, and whereabouts are you? Uh, so, I'm all the way down in uh, South Devon, but I'm also working at home today. So, you may hear church bells, you may hear horses going by in the background, but... Uh, Hopefully it won't be too disruptive. How incredible and picturesque. Beautiful. Um, Okay, so today we're talking about resilience. Um, Sam, Jennifer, both of you are involved with the Social Workers Educational Trust. uh, And I'm aware that the Trust recently held an event exploring resilience in social work. So I want to start off at ground level. Um, The issues that you were discussing at your event last week, what do we mean when we talk about resilience? So what do we mean by uh, resilience? It's often understood really as um, the ability to respond to um, unexpected events in a positive way and to to effectively manage all the emotional and the mental strain. And I think the other element of it is the ability to keep going. So resilience, you can often think about, I suppose the analogy could be a little bit like a muscle Um, you know, you build resilience over time. So I think that's often how we tend to think about it. Muscles can become fatigued though, Jennifer? Uh, Yes, they can. Um, And I I don't think if if we carry on with the analogy, you could say that muscles can be strained. But you can also say that muscles, where that happens, you can, you should rest. And then you can effectively begin to build again. So I think resilience, you know, if we're thinking about it and using the analogy of the muscle, it can be something that can ebb um, uh, under a lot of strain. Um, And if you sufficiently rest and you build it up, you can obtain it again. But I don't think it's something that's completely lost. Um, And I also think that in terms of resilience, we may have greater levels of resilience for certain things in our lives. And if you're thinking about, you know, being a social work practitioner, you may be more resilient in terms of managing, uh, you know, organisational change as opposed to managing another aspect of your work. So I think that's one way of kind of thinking about resilience. And I think the other thing that I would add is, um, you know, resilience is built up 
in our lives, in our everyday lives. So where we have issues of loss, where we have, um, you know, circumstances that, that challenge us within our families or within our friendship network, we are all the time building resilience. Hence why I think I use the analogy of the muscle. And should we be thinking of resilience as a, a personality trait, Sam, or is it a skill that can be learned by anybody? I'm not sure if resilience is a personality trait, and I would probably echo Jennifer's comments that it's a skill. It's something that you develop um, over time. I don't know. I wouldn't say people are more resilient than others. Mm. It very much depends on your personal circumstances. The only thing I would say about resilience is that you need to test it and challenge it to make it stronger, to know what you can kind of manage and deal with. And there are different ways um, to go around that. So I'm not sure if it's a personality trait. I think it's more, more, yeah, more a skill that's developed through practice. I don't think you can learn resilience in an academic sense. I don't think you could be taught it at a university. I think it's something that comes later. Are there other tools, though, that you can implement, you know, in terms of your ways of thinking in a difficult circumstance that can enhance that skill, though? You're saying it can't be taught, but are there not sort of psychological approaches that can be uh, encouraged that will help an individual be more resilient under uh, a pressured situation? I think that's a really complex question about resilience. It just really depends on kind of what you're dealing with, Um and you won't know until you get into practice. So I think university is quite a, and placements are quite a safe place to kind of explore your practice, but they won't really give you the resilience for later on. So resilience and experience go hand in hand, yeah? Okay. What one kind of informs and builds the other. And I think my impression is that often discussions about resilience are kind of limited to understandings of how to cope with stress. And Jennifer, just coming back to something you said, mm. I think, in your first answer, about the ability to adapt under pressure. I mean, mm. how difficult is it to maintain empathy while ensuring, um, you know, you have appropriate emotional boundaries are in place, for example? Is that part of being resilient, being able to provide high quality services, maintain empathy for the people you're supporting, but keeping your boundaries in place? as well as dealing with the stress? Would that be a more kind of all-encompassing understanding of what it is to be resilient? I think within the kind of practice environment that, that people, you know, which social workers um, from any kind of discipline are working within, they will be bringing all of that together. And I think um, the ability to maintain resilience, and I think it goes back to what Sam said earlier, um, it, it's about actually knowing yourself knowing your limits, being, being self-aware. And I think, um, you know, again, just going back to what Sam said, hopefully what we can do in universities is enable those who are training to be social workers to have some level of self-awareness so they know their limits, they know their emotional boundary, not just the emotional boundary, but they, they know their limits in terms of what they can cope with. And if you know your limits, then actually I would hope that you know at what point to rest, at what point to seek support, at what point to say, look, I'm out of this for a little while because I can't do 
this anymore or actually I need change in order to sustain um, you know the work that I'm doing and in order to be the best practitioner that I can be and I think you know there is very well-known research out there about the fact that the professional duration of a social worker is approximately eight years and that that really kind of feeds into uh, issues of resilience but I think what we also need to realize is that actually the work of social work is very is now very complex so practitioners are actually when they when they come to actually undertake their work they are dealing with high-end safeguarding really complex areas of practice and and therefore that will draw on their resilience and that and there will be cases no matter how experienced you are that will draw on your resilience and again I suppose I'm a little bit of an and you know I like analogies and, and pictures really but if you think about an analogy as a bank account you know you put into that bank account good supervision good support a fantastic team hopefully a manageable workload and that all goes into the bank account of resilience but then there might be a case that really draws on that and then you're left depleted. And again, it's for the practitioner to go back and then, you know, with the help and support of others, put back into the bank account of resilience. And just to continue the analogy, though, Jennifer, we are in, in a literal cost of living crisis and social work has never been more demanding in terms of caseloads and pressures. So there is, to draw that analogy of cost of living crisis into social work, things are getting harder for staff. You did mm. mention earlier on, and we're going to come back to this, you talked about needing, you know, being able to take rest and calling on support that's not always possible when a, when a member of staff is, is being overworked and maybe doesn't have the managerial support that they need. Mm-hmm. But before we do that, I want to talk about, you know, autonomy. Um, you know, when, you, when we think of resilience, is it easier to be resilient when you feel a degree of autonomy and control o- over your own work and the ability to implement changes? I'm, I'm thinking of like, think of a situation where somebody is in that situation. Compare that to a situation where somebody is being micromanaged um, by a boss who's not giving them... Uh, and decision-making control, things like that. Is it easier to be resilient when you feel you're in control of your situation? So I'm just going to kind of jump jump in and just quickly link back to resilience because there was a bit I wanted to add. Mm. And that was about resilience being a, a paradox. Because in one way, as a social worker, you've got to be a little bit of a toughie because you're going to work with really complex, quite stressful, quite traumatic situations, whatever field of social work you're in. So you kind of need to be a little bit of a tough eater to manage it. But then you also need to be really sensitive and open. And that's the bit of em- that links to the empathy that we were talking about. So it's a, it's a real balance between, between kind of protecting yourself yeah. and not having that um, vicarious trauma of the cases that you work, but also being open and sensitive and feeling and being with the people, kids that you that you encounter. So mm. being sensitive enough to hear that and take that in and, and do a bit of work with that. Um, with um, regards to autonomy, does that give resilience? Kinder is, is mm. the answer. But I think that will come really from how you as a practitioner manage your work and your caseload anyway. And some of that links back to the discussion that I think Jennifer was saying about kind of self-care and rest. So autonomy, yes, can give you uh, resilience. But again, you need to know your 
you need to know your strengths and your limitations mm. and your shut-off points. Um, and I don't think micromanaging necessarily helps. It's, it, all the time, I think, throughout this conversation, we're going to be looking for some kind of middle ground. So yeah. being a bit tough, but being a bit sensitive, being autonomous, but needing a bit of support and direction. And I think just on the back of that, on, on what Sam has said, I think we need to be really careful when we when we talk about resilience as if it's, you know, we've already identified that it's not necessarily something that can be taught and, you know, to an extent it may be innate and it is developed over time based on people's work, you know, personal life circumstances and what happens within their practitioner role. But I think we can't just locate it within the individual. Um, you know, there is an absolute need for organisations that practitioners are in to take responsibility, to support and enable resilience to take place. And and where it's not happening, to hold up their hands and say, what more can we do? Rather than just simply to turn around and say to the practitioner, well, you're not very resilient, are you? Because that's that actually, for me, is not very fair, given the complexity of work that people are doing and the fact that they are in that complexity of work every day. And I certainly know of practitioners who do more than their 36, 37 hours a week. It's the norm to do more than that. If you've got a safeguarding case, you've got to, you've got to ensure that that adult or that child or that person is safe. And if that means working till nine o'clock at night, then you do that because that's the expectation and that's the professional kind of um, uh, expectation that you have of yourself. So, you know, it, we, we, I think there's, there is a need for organisations to, to uh, acknowledge and then move on from acknowledging to then support practitioners to further develop and build their resilience within the workplace. I'm glad you brought that up, um, Jennifer. I've, I've, uh, I was When I was doing some research, Dr. Neil Thompson, he's written about resilience and highlights a concern that often resilience tends to be understood in a narrow individualistic way, which I think is what we've been talking about so far. You know, it's as if it's simply a characteristic of individuals and, and it's nothing to do with um, organisations or wider sociological factors. So if we're looking at what an organisation can do to help its staff be resilient and what an organization whether an organization in itself can actually be resilient what are those factors how what does a resilient organization or an organization which promotes resilience what does that look like i think it begins with with big messages from senior staff about the fact that they care about their staff and that they recognize that their staff cannot just keep going that staff will need downtime and that downtime can happen in terms of training, development, you know, opportunities for teams to do different things, training opportunities like being a practice educator, just to, 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 to have that step back and that step away from the work, but all the time feeding into that, that individual practitioner's professional development. I think there, there's something about that. I also think there's something about senior leaders modelling for staff, you know, what it what it means to rest and to stop, not resilience. I, I you know, I would say, you know, some might say, well, it's, you know, they should be modelling resilience. I don't think I don't I don't think staff need that. I think what they need is to know that actually I can have downtime. I can step away. I can rest and I can build my resilience again. 
And I'm also working in an environment where I can put my hand up and say, actually, I've hit my limit and something needs to happen here. And they are heard. So I was that that's my starter for 10, really. And what factors keep you resilient, Jennifer? Um, I think what you've already mentioned about uh, being in control of my work, having a sense of control over my work. Um, I think the other thing that keeps me uh, resilient is talking to colleagues, sometimes just hearing how bad it is for them. makes me think oh okay it's it's bad for me but it's actually not that bad and it gives me a sense of kind of balance because I think sometimes you feel that you are you're overwhelmed but actually sometimes it's about that's just your perspective um and to check out your perspective is good if we take a step back though Jennifer because you've been talking about practice you're an academic I mean let's not pretend Mm -hmm. that academia is this sort of utopia of you know happy pleasurable work I I so Sam's studying for a PhD years ago I considered studying for a PhD what put me off more than anything was working uh for a year as a research assistant uh in a university and realized that academia was more dog eat dog than anything I had seen up to that point um so yeah you know you need to be resilient to do your job. Sam, yeah. you are studying for a PhD. I mean, uh, anyone I know who've, who's done a PhD, I knew one guy did a PhD and he took four or five years to complete, uh, should have done it in three. And he said up to the last two months, he could have kicked it into the curve and just walked away because it was so stressful. So it's not like you guys are dealing in situations that you've got it easy and everyone else has it hard. So Sam, what about you? How, how are you coping at the moment and what what's helping get you through? So resilience for me or what, builds and develops my resilience is kind of looking up, looking forwards, looking for the new and interesting developments in social work. And that happens to be through PhD research at the moment. So that's kind of what what keeps me going, kind of seeing what's out there uh, in in the world of of social work. And I suppose the other thing that keeps me resilient at the moment is enjoying what I do. So I really, really enjoyed I really enjoyed being a social worker. I love working with kids. It's a very cool job. Um, so I think enjoying what you do makes a difference. And even now in this PhD research, and yes, it's going towards the end, and of course I could kick to the curb too, but I won't because I know that there's an, there's an outcome, there's an end goal that's still worth um, pursuing. So it's just that dogged determination at the moment yes. uh, in research. But yeah, but but looking... For stuff that's new and exciting and change, that helps me uh, with my resilience. Thank you, Sam. Jennifer, you used that stat earlier on about the eight-year uh, life uh, of social work career. I'm always curious to know if that's a mean average or uh, how that is calculated, because you know it could be, I suppose, some very very short tenures that bring that average down compared to people who are in practice a lot longer. But just in terms of some more stats around that social work england published research back in september 2020 that indicated that 85 percent of current social workers report stress as a result of their job and four in ten social workers anticipate quitting the profession within the next five years as a result of high caseloads stress and negative working uh sorry and a negative working environment and it was very worrying because that viewpoint is higher among newly qualified social workers it was at 48 percent you know so that's the context average eight year length of a social work career when you think of colleagues that you've known who have left the profession or have burned out um what were the key do you know what the key factors at play were sam jennifer do you know what those are so reflecting on then social work management posts i suppose is the recruitment of newly qualified workers or ayse as we now call them and that's an easy recruit 
because that fills my desk spaces and that covers all my vacancies. I suppose the issue is then what happens to those social workers in the beginning of their practice. And that's the key kind of about that's that's where you nurture your workers. And that's the bit that builds resilience. And I think sometimes what happens is that social workers come in with quite an aspirational model of they, what they want to be. They want to be like a super social worker that can do all the casework, go to court, do all the complexity. And actually, you need time to kind of develop those skills. And that was some of the reasons for dropouts uh, for the newly qualified workers in a particular local authority I worked for. And I think the other bit about dropout links back to Jennifer's comments about what makes a supportive organisation. So we might have big mission statements that say, yes, we'll do all of this for you, we'll give you extra training and we'll support your first year in employment. But the reality of frontline social work is, is very different. It's very busy. And I think that sometimes students are overwhelmed and just not able to to kind of get through that year or they make it through that year, they struggle and then then they drop out. I think when you're thinking of like the, the retention crisis though in, in the workforce, does more not need to be done to keep those individuals in the workforce? You, when you think of the resources that go into training somebody and the amount of time they've spent themselves going through university, for staff to be burning out that quickly, surely that's a real failing in the system. I suppose I would add that there's more to life uh, than statutory social work, mm-hmm. which is what a lot of our newly qualifieds come into, so into child protection or, or mental health. There is so much variety and diversity in social work roles. So sometimes I think at university or just before students qualify, it's just worth exploring that wider picture of social work so you don't feel obligated to go down the statutory route that might not fit your skills base it might not be something that you're really interested in so I think there's a a, I think there's a deeper story into why people come into statutory work which is where most people end up and that's where the highest burnout and vacancy and turnover is. How did your each of your expectations uh, as a trainee social worker measure up to the reality jennifer if you go first what was you know if you sam was given that example of the the young person at university wanting to be the super social worker can you think back to what your experience was like and what reality was like compared to how you imagine things to be i think there's a you know and i hope this kind of resonates with the audience but i think it's got something to do with age so i arrived at social work eventually in my 30s, I started training in my 30s. And so I and I had done quite a lot of work, kind of case management work elsewhere. And I had worked with, you know, um, uh, you know, uh, individuals whose whose uh, life circumstances were extremely challenging. So I'd done that for a number of years. Um, and so when I came to social work, it wasn't a kind of surprise it wasn't I wasn't kind of overwhelmed by it because I'd, I had been working with people for a very long time so I think there is something and I, and I don't want to kind of get into any kind of ageism but there is something about a level of maturity that helps with resilience because if you've kind of lived it and been through it and worked with people for a pretty long time you um you know you 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 are still surprised, you're still curious, you're still challenged in terms of what you're seeing and what you're doing. But you also are able, you have the, I think you have the capacity to absorb more. And I think 
What's kind of missing from our conversation at this moment is the impact of COVID on the cohorts that are coming out of university and particularly what I saw in terms of um, newly qualified social workers who were coming into local authorities who the reality for them was they had undertaken a placement but it was a hybrid placement they were they could not even get near some of the service users they could not physically get near and get those necessary skills and develop that resilience so once we came out of covid and we were supposedly back in that place where we were talking to people directly and meeting them and and working with them directly there may not have been the necessary skills base to absorb that and also they had done virtual social work. So moving from virtual social work to in-person social work is completely different. And I get, so I, th- I think we have to throw that into the mix and throw it into the mix in terms of any discussion about resilience as well. Because actually the reality is how social work is being done has fundamentally changed as a result of COVID. Many practitioners are now working from home. They have a hybrid professional existence and I've heard social workers talk about the fact that they will come off of a telephone conversation a very difficult one with a service user and in the good old days when they were in the office around their team they could turn to someone and just go this is what happened you know and and just de-stress from it and get it all out now they're looking at Microsoft Teams to see who's on red or who's on green so they can deliberately contact them and say have you got five minutes can I talk to you about this? Because I've had a really horrible phone call. That's a completely different way of working. I think that potentially impacts on this notion of resilience and how to keep, you know, how to maintain resilience. Jennifer, that is so interesting um, for a number of reasons. I know that you have done a lot of research um, with young people in care looking at use of mobile technology. Mm-hmm. Um, but kind of moving on from that, thinking about social work teams, uh, yeah, the ability to just turn to a colleague and vent when there's stress or even just like I'm thinking of the lack of you know how impersonal it can be speaking, you know, over Zoom or Teams. And I mean, in many ways, it's wonderful because this podcast is testament to the fact that I can interview, you know, you're both in England, I'm in Ireland. We can do lots of collaborative, interesting things using technology. But at the same time, it's not the same. I made an episode, sorry, I made an episode a few episodes back with two young people and a social worker in Belfast around a table. It was so much fun. It was so energetic. And it was just because we were together as opposed to, you know, looking at a screen. I love being with people. Um, Yeah, so bringing it back to the point then, just how important is that peer support uh, to be able to help people deal with the situations that may seem like very stressful when you're dealing with them remotely, are they much more manageable when you're face-to-face with your colleagues? I'm going I'm to turn to Sam because I think, you know, you, you, you've been in that situation as a, a line manager. Yeah, I was, but I was going to just track back a little bit when we were talking about um, virtual social work or teams or tele-social work, as I started calling it in my, in my research. Um, but one of the things that came from my research really was the importance of placement and you... I know, Jennifer, you were saying we had this sort of strange blended hybrid social work training, but actually throughout my research, one of the kind of themes that comes up is the students wanting more time on placement, always more time. And that's because they want to kind of hone their social work skills, 
their practice development. They want to know their methods. They want to meet the competency. So not to have placement or to have shorter placements actually doesn't really prepare social work students for practice. And if you're not prepared, then you won't have that level kind of, of resilience. In terms of when things get tough, yes, we talk to our colleagues because that's how we decompress. Yeah. yeah? So, so you manage these really complex, difficult, traumatic situations because if they, if they weren't complex, traumatic situations, they wouldn't get a referral. It wouldn't, it wouldn't come to our door. So so by nature, it's really, um, it's just really complex and stressful. Yeah. So finding, so finding colleagues to chat to makes, makes a huge difference. And sometimes even as a frontline manager, it makes a difference. So it might be that I'm the man, only manager in the office and no one else is in. So I've got a whole floor of teams to, uh, to kind of to decompress and support, but that that's okay. Sometimes it's just that way. The point was raised earlier about vicarious trauma. Um, if you're not able to decompress with colleagues, does that risk, or does that increase the risk that you'll maybe taking on vicarious trauma from the cases you're dealing with? Or is that something that, that, I mean, I suppose that's something that's happened even when people were working in teams together, able to turn to the person next to them and talk about what they're experiencing? Yeah, so so one of the, I was making some notes actually as we were going through this interview. And one of the things I put down is that resilience doesn't make safe practice. You might be able to deal with lots of things or seem to be able to deal with lots of complexities and high high cases, even if you're not. That's what you're seen to be doing. So I don't think resilience makes a safe practitioner necessarily. Um, and yeah, it makes, I think, having a really supportive team makes a big difference because you're, you've got a shared live experience of, of caseloads that you're dealing with or professionals or courts that you're dealing with. And actually just having that opportunity to talk that through, not, not a case plan, that's your job as a social worker, but just to talk through scenarios and situations and stresses makes, makes a big difference to, uh, I suppose, resilience and how you manage your day. I would also add that um, there's something about recognising the impact of hybrid working on resilience. So it's the notion that work has now come into your home. Mm. And I've known social workers Mm. talk about the fact that actually there is no dividing line between your home and work. Yeah, it's not working from home, it's it's sleeping at the office, isn't it? Yes, effectively. Um, And that time that we would use to not only decompress, but to reflect on cases because we were driving somewhere. And I'm not Mm. saying that, you know, practitioners are clearly driving, but when you were driving home from work, and I remember doing it, you know, you're just thinking through your cases, you're thinking about things and then you're it's almost like you're mentally getting ready and you've got the list in your head of the things that you have to do tomorrow that you know yes that happens but that might be happening whilst you're putting in the washing and you're doing this that and the other in the house it's it's just there's that lack of separation and uh, you know maybe there's a research study and someone looking at you know the the hybrid nature of social work and how it might impact on resilience and and the ability of practitioners to kind of step away and create space and rest that's needed to restore resilience. 
I want to come back to something we were speaking about earlier, and it was the role that organisations can play. You know, is there? Do you think that um, some organisations focus on resilience and the language around that and individual resilience uh, as a personal um, skill or trait um, that we've discussed earlier? Do you think some organisations do that um, so that they can continue to basically? push heavy workloads on social workers, have social workers continue to endure poor, poor working conditions. You know, does, uh, in your experience, does that, does that, does that bear out? I think um, they may talk about it, but I think people walk, <laughs> people yeah. use their feet and they walk. Okay. So, you know, what, what an organisation or what senior managers are saying and actually what's happening on the ground. Um, and I get, you know, some research that I've done in, in the past that was looking at, you know, the training and development of social workers and the level of satisfaction that they had around that. And and literally where practitioners do not feel supported, where they do not feel that they are adequately trained, they will walk. And because we don't have enough social workers, um, that is potentially what's happening. You see people moving straight into the into the area of working for agency. And I think actually, I mean, here's a, possibly an interesting and controversial idea, that move to agency is not just about money. It's about being in control of my work and I don't have to stay if I don't want to. And I can get my downtime, I can get my rest, and then I can go back and start working again. And maybe, and here's something even more controversial, we may need to change how social work is done. So um, one of the discussions that we had when we met as part of the, the, the kind of the development day for the Social Work Educational Trust, someone raised the fact that actually within the medical profession, they do, um, uh, uh, you know, they, they work in different areas for certain amounts of time. So that both keeps interest and develops um, uh, skill and knowledge in different areas and yet within social work there's this expectation that you have to stay in the same potentially stay in the same area um, maybe, whether that be adults or children and yes you get the opportunity to move within that that area that specialist area but there isn't that kind of movement there may not be enough movement and there's not enough time maybe to kind of step away from the work um, and then come back to frontline. There's no downtime from frontline. It's frontline or find another job that takes you away from the frontline. Yes. Line. And I'm interested, Jennifer, you mentioned, you know, people when they're not being cared for, they're, they're going to walk. Now, you don't just go from good to, you know, good mindset, everything's fine. Suddenly everything's terrible and you leave the next mm. day. You know, there's a, there's going to be a, a gradient involved in that. And I was reading an article from Professional Social Work magazine from last October. It was by a retired senior mental health social worker called Mike Bush. And in that piece, Mike contends that, and this is a quote, if social workers are not cared for by the professional family, care cannot be sustained over the longer term and the care system could even eventually become toxic. So... Yeah, what I'm worried about is in that period in which a social worker is finding things unmanageable, you know, in terms of how that is maybe affecting their ability to to work and support the individuals that need their help. You know, it's not necessarily anything to do with that social worker's motivation, but a system which is which is not supporting them to deliver high quality services that can lead to a scenario in which the care system becomes toxic. Mm -hmm. And that's what I want to look at, you know, how close do you think we might be to reaching that point? So, so I think t 
toxicity in the workplace is probably a whole other podcast. But um, I think each local authority probably has its own kind of working culture and habitual ways of practice. You know, we work late because we work late. This is what we do. We have high caseloads because this is how it is. So, so there's probably structurally some big changes that that need to happen. I, I agree with what Sam has said that there are there's organisational culture, but there are also wider structural issues that are beyond the control of individual social workers and actually beyond the control of their organisation, and that. You know, and, and we see that in local authorities that are potentially going bankrupt. We see that in local authorities that are making decisions with regards to spending and what practitioners can spend on individual cases. So I think I heard the the you know that um, social workers may not be able to take. The, the you know, if you're working in children's social care, you cut, you know, you're working in a looked after children's team. You can't now take your child that you have responsibility out from McDonald's to have a chat. You've got to find some, somewhere else or something that's potentially free or you've got to pay for it yourself. That's may I think that's some of the reality that that comes with, you know, modern day social work. And that that isn't the organisation that isn't the practitioner. These are wider structural issues that have um, have been building for a considerable amount of time and are now coming to the fore. And, and that means that decisions need to be made elsewhere. It sits structurally, it sits with, the, with government. It's no good saying, here's a suggested list of 15, 17 cases that a children's social worker should have and then a local authority piling 30 plus on them. So there's something about, there's something structurally that, that's very wrong with social work and that's what makes people walk. So I don't think it's the intentions of individual practitioners mm. or managers or even teams. It's something higher up and it's something deeper within the culture of statutory. Let's stick it all on statutory practice really so something's got to give hasn't it so either either structurally we change or all the social workers go and and that is not a pattern that we want to be stuck in as a profession mm. when we're thinking of those sort of organizational factors um there was a research paper i was reading recently it was published I think, in community care this is going back a number of years to 2015 it was conducted by dr paula mcfadden um, so she did the research behind the, the article in Community Care and it was looking at um, burnout among UK social workers. It found that poor supervision increases the risk of suffering high emotional exhaustion. I'd be really keen to hear from both of you about the importance of good quality supervision by a social worker uh, and the extent to which it has helped you in, when you were working in practice, um, Sam and Jennifer as well, sure. um, how important was that supervision? And do you think that employers sufficiently recognise how much it matters to frontline staff? Yeah. So, so my last uh, manager post, we used a supervision model that focused on um, like emotional intelligence. But it was a very long supervision model, so you, you can't click through every case and make it a tick box note on your computer system. That won't work. But to have a really in-depth case discussion about four or five cases 
And really that focused on how well the social worker knew that child's like lived experience and journey and then how they made decisions with and for that young person. So that was a really good supervision model, but it was lengthy. But I think more quality and then I think the roadmaps or, or signposting for practice and development that came from that were really good quality as opposed to just sitting in a room and saying, a social worker telling me something about a family, great, and I'll, I'll put a quick note and tick it off, serves no purpose whatsoever. So I think the quality of supervision requires that in-depth discussion. And from that, you can make a plan for the young person and then you can identify training needs for your practitioner. But you need to have the time and space to do that in your day. Sam, yeah, exactly. That's the point I was going to ask. You were saying about, you know, a lengthy, lengthy process doing that supervision. When you're in a department where you're constantly firefighting and you've got an untenable number of cases, I mean, I, maybe that's the situation your department was in. Is it a case of senior management then taking the decision to actually to prioritise supervision? No, I think um, so. It's always fire. There's always something happening on somebody in a team somewhere. It's a big building where lots of teams are condensed. You're always firefighting. Something's always happening. There's always, um, I was going to say section 47, but there's always a, a child protection investigation happening somewhere. But I think, um, but I think it's worth taking time to. to it's worth making. It's worth making time to do that quality supervision because you can kind of do a bit of a mini case review. You can really see what's happening for these families, particularly if you're in safeguarding or you're going off to court or you're looking at permanency. So for a manager, actually, from my point of view, really need to understand what's happening for that young person and family. Because what I don't want is the repeat referrals and families going back or this kind of long term drawn out involvement of the social worker when it's not really achieving anything so there's lots of I guess there's lots of little wins for doing longer supervision so wins for the young person so we know what's happening for them and it doesn't drift and we've got a time scale wins for my social worker so I know what they need for their development wins for the team isn't it because we're, we're, we're turning over caseloads and then actually we are creating a culture that builds that nurture and builds that development and that's what gives you the resilience yeah but I would but I would also say Sam that that actually that is supervision of cases but what about supervision of the person okay so going and asking them how are you how are you feeling how's it going today I realized that you had a rough case and actually supervision has I think a model of supervision is not just about the cases um, but also it's about the person. When did you last take leave? I noted that you were working, you've worked really late nights for the past four weeks. What's going on? You know, and asking those curious questions. And I suppose I'm going to be really, sorry, I don't mean to be controversial, but hey, I'm going to just be controversial. It's a good place to do it. If you've got a, <laughs> if you've got a line manager, he's squashed and feeling it. You don't ask those questions because actually you don't want to know because you just need to get things done. And then if you're in an environment where actually as a practitioner, you don't even think you could say those things because it could be 
looked on as potentially a form of weakness or an inability to do the work well, then we're in an environment that whilst we say, yes, we're committed to supervision, we have a culture that mitigates against that through, you know, uh, line managers who feel pressed on all, all sides and practitioners who don't feel confident to say, I'm not in a great place at the moment and I, and I need help because of how that would be viewed. Um, and so, yes, there is room for supervision. Yes, good supervision is required. But actually, what's the culture that we're in and what a manager's facing so that actually good, strong depth of supervision can actually be undertaken? That's really worthwhile and, again, builds resilience. Yeah. So what you're talking about really is the skills of those individual sort of managers mm-hmm. or seniors to kind of take that time and ask. So to be really attuned Absolutely. and really attentive to the team that they're in. Absolutely. But, again, do, but again, is there the culture? Do they feel that they are able to do that? Do they have line managers that support that way of working? Or are they so pressed um, that they can they can't do that? Yeah, I think I think I think you're right. Um, first line management is is a real pressure sandwich, isn't it? So you're yes. pushed from your social workers. We've got too much work. We can't do it. And then you've and you're squished from the top, aren't you, by senior okay. management saying these are the core performance indicators. Yes. Get these cases out. You know, churn exactly. it through. So it's a real difficult position, and you can get you can lose your team in that. You're right because you don't want to ask those questions. Mm-hmm. Although I've always felt that I, I could and I, I should. But yeah. Yeah. Sam, Jennifer, thank you so much. Um, we're going to wrap up, but I'm going to ask a final question so you can answer either part of this question. So either for anyone listening who's the influence to make a change in their workplace to improve the situation for staff working at the front line, what would you like them to take from this discussion? The other question is for someone who's thinking of coming into social work, who's not yet a social worker, who may be a student, what would you give them in terms of advice? Jennifer, I'll ask you to go first. You can choose which one to answer. Sam has to answer the other one that's left. Uh, so I'm going to go with students because I'm in social work education. So I'll take the easy option, Sam. Um, <laughs> um, I would say that as a student coming into social work, um, you have to expose yourself to people. Social work is about people. It's about people who are experiencing challenges and difficulties. And in actual fact, the more you expose yourself to working with people, the more you will develop those skills. You may not even realise that you're developing those skills, but you are developing those important skills around communication. You're developing those skills around the ability to take on sometimes some distressing uh, information um, and in doing so you are building that resilience muscle. So I would say that actually just by being in the presence of people and working with people you are learning an incredible amount which will put you in a good place to begin your social work um, training. Thank you, Jennifer. And Sam, last word to you then. I don't think I can follow up on that, but um, 
In terms of working in a team, a social worker coming into a team, I would say keep your compassion. Remember why it is that you wanted to be a social worker, which is primarily to to make stuff better for people, whatever those people are. Don't be afraid to to speak out. But when you speak out, come with suggestions that that, uh, managers and and seniors can uh, have a think about and use. But yeah, keep, keep your compassion. It will see you through and that will give you your resilience.